Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. On this week's show, posting May 22, 2015, we'll be speaking with the writer and consultant Christopher Reeve about his article, HIV in the Arab Spring, the Unseen War, in the World Policy Journal Spring Issue. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. For many politicians, or so the joke goes, denial is just a river in Egypt. But it was no joke a year ago when the general about to be elected Egypt's president, Abdul Fattah al-Sisi, denied the deadly AIDS problem there, declaring total defeat of the disease and dismissing any need of imported medical treatment for it. That played well politically for the country's conservative base, but it also dramatized the way upheavals of the so-called Arab Spring have contributed to a worsening AIDS crisis in the region. Writer and consultant Christopher Reeve has worked on HIV awareness at the United Nations Population Fund's Arab States Regional Office in Cairo, and he explores the situation in World Policy Journal Spring Issue under the headline HIV and the Arab Spring, the Unseen War. We spoke about it recently for this podcast. Christopher Reeve, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thanks so much, David. Start with an overview. How has the Mideast overall compared with the rest of the world as to extent of AIDS and recent increase or decrease? So the world has generally seen a decrease in new HIV infections and AIDS-related deaths, and public health uh, practitioners should be very proud of that. The Middle East actually is seeing an increase in both of those uh, indicators. In 2013, the Middle East, for example, saw 25,000 new infections and 15,000 aid-related deaths. And we should also kind of be cautious when we look at the numbers because the numbers vary. They're based on estimates. And as, as, you know, as I've seen in the Middle East, there is, because of the stigma that is attached to the HIV virus and having AIDS, there is very little incentive for many people to actually get tested. So, you know, it, it, is, it is very probable, it is probable that the numbers are above what we see. So for now, we, we estimate that the Middle East has 230,000 persons living with HIV, although it is, uh, it is almost certain that the number is higher. Besides the usual high-risk groups, men who have sex with men, sex workers, and intravenous drug users, talk about what new groups have been made vulnerable because of the shifting political climates and outright chaos following the Arab Spring. Right. So obviously those groups, as you mentioned, they are well-known throughout the world to be the the most at-risk groups, and and governments and NGOs and international organizations need to target those groups if you want to to decrease new infections and to get people on antiretrovirals and and, um, improve the quality of life of those persons. What's occurring now in the Middle East, and which is kind of brought to the forefront a new group, is the... uh, 
is the chaos that brings about displaced persons and refugees. So in Libya, for example, there are many displaced persons. Tawargaz is one group that was displaced, and very prominently uh, Syria, as a, as a result of that civil war, has seen you know, a great number of Syrians displaced within Syria and leaving to, to nearby states like Lebanon and Jordan and Egypt, etc. And what happens with the, the refugees is there is an economic vulnerability that they experience, and that economic vulnerability frequently will kind of open the door to uh, sex work or survival sex. And w- women and girls, which is also a vulnerable group, it is, it's a recognized vulnerable group for HIV infection, uh, are, especially, are, are especially at risk. And you have women and girls who are refugees, and they are, it is more difficult for them to negotiate their safety. They're vulnerable to rape, much more so than, than, than men and boys. And in terms of survival sex, you, have, you may have a mother who doesn't have uh, the father of her children, and she needs to feed her ch- herself and her children. She needs to clothe them. She needs to ensure that they have a home. And we are seeing a lot of survival sex, and this, is, this puts you know, this group at, at great risk for HIV infection. And because, again, of the conservative nature of the region, the culture, there isn't a there isn't a culture of going to get tested for HIV. And, you know, public health practitioners in the field of HIV recognize that just knowing one's status is extremely important because then you can get drugs that will decrease your your viral load. It will decrease your chance of passing the virus along to others. And you can also take measures to prevent the virus from besides taking the drugs, but condom use, et cetera, you can decrease the risk that you put to others. But uh, this, this kind of overlap between these two vulnerable categories, women and girls and refugees is, is causing, uh, is bringing about a, a number of, of a, a new kind of category where we're seeing high numbers of, of HIV infections. I spoke with uh, Mariki Ridder, who does, uh, she works in, from the Netherlands and she goes to the region frequently and she does sexual health education and she works with these vulnerable groups and NGOs that are in the region. She was just in Lebanon and she, a lot of the information is anecdotal because we don't have numbers, we don't have good numbers and all she's hearing is that the numbers are going up for this category, for the refugees. Let's uh, go back to where we began, Egypt. What did the overthrow of the Mubarak regime and the election of the Muslim Brotherhood's Mohamed Morsi mean for the public concern about AIDS and the competence to deal with it? So Egypt is is, uh, certainly an interesting case. So after Mubarak, without the, the parliament, was dominated by and, and, and elected, you know, arguably free, in the most free and fair way than, that, that Egypt had seen up until that point, or had seen, actually. And um, parliament was dominated by Islamists, and ultimately Mohamed Morsi was elected the president of Egypt. And we kind of saw in Egypt, uh, and I was living in Egypt at the time, this kind of movement towards religious conservatism, and you kind of saw the physical indicators of it and you know talk of aids and talk of these kind of taboo subjects decreased that being said in 2013 Mohamed Morsi was taken out of power and Abdel Fattah al-Sisi who was the defense minister at the time he took the reins and we started seeing not just this 
conservatism and within this culture of conservatism, the silencing of, of speech on taboo subjects like sex, safe sex, HIV infection, sex work, intravenous drug use, etc. But there was a targeting, there's been a targeting of men who have sex with men and biological males who are non-gender uh, conforming, they, or excuse me, gender non-conforming, uh, transgender persons. And this, they're also a very high risk group. And as the government targets them, you're again disincentivizing interaction with the state. So men who have sex with men and these transgender individuals who are at high risk of HIV infection are not going to go to get tested. They're going because they're scared of being incarcerated because who they are, their identity is criminalized. Their identity and then what's going to be said, it's not their identity, but the, the acts that, that they may or may not commit is criminalized. So you're going to have this disengagement with the state and, and where you're going to have, we see high risk behavior because there is, there isn't, sex ed in Egypt. People are getting their information from the internet. There is, people have access to, you know, all types of porn, but they don't have access to good information on safe sex. So it's been interesting to kind of see this game between, not a game, but this contest between Islamists and the military regime uh, to see who's the most conservative and, and trying to prove to the Egyptian people who the most conservative is and, and, and gaining gaining uh, political points for that. Besides this competition of intent, uh, there have been media exposés of government incompetence and perhaps even corruption. Right. Uh, the, there were two articles written, uh, very unprecedented and, and, and pretty amazing in my view, that kind of looked at how monies were, were going to Egypt uh, by the Global Fund and these monies were to be used to, to fight the spread of HIV. And you had people in Egypt living with HIV who were not getting medicine. You know, medicine is imported. And there, there are a number of bureaucratic issues there. And one was that the medicine was, was getting caught up, the antiretrovirals, which stops the virus from replicating in your body, allowing you to live long. And then if you reach, if you have the virus and you reach a an undetectable level, you decrease the chance of passing the virus on to others. And that medicine was getting caught up in customs, and it wasn't passing through. So, so Egyptians with HIV who had registered with the Ministry of Health were going to clinics and leaving empty-handed. And I met with individuals, and the, the authors of those articles met with individuals who had all kinds of tales of going to get medicine and being given the wrong dosages, expired medicine, a different class of medicine, and, and, and all of these things put the person at, at risk of, of resistance. The HIV virus, which is a pretty amazing virus in its, in its survivability, the way it survives in the body, it, it will develop resistance to medicine. And if you change the medicine, if a person goes a long period of time without taking medicine, the virus, which is attempting to replicate quickly in, in that person's body will begin to develop resistance. So all of these things were very dangerous to persons who were trying to do the right thing and, and extend their lives and increase the, the quality of their lives. And this was happening with a lot of money coming into Egypt. And a lot of the officials in Egypt have downplayed what was happening. The, the, um, the man who was in, the, in Egypt's AIDS program, who he was heading Egypt's AIDS program, He's no longer there, and there's, there's a new man, Walid uh, Kamel, 
And I have, I have been unable to reach him, but I did uh, recently get a message from Ahmed Al-Khamis, who works with Walid or Mr. Kamal, and he says that, that they have been able, Egypt has been able to, to address the issue of the medicines coming in and getting caught up in customs. So the medicine is coming through and people are getting access to the medicine at the right dosage and the right medicine for the virus that's in that person's body. And this is, I'm, I'm certain this is at least in part, a, it comes as a result of these exposés, these articles that were written in the Egyptian press. You also talk about a television expose of homosexual activity, ostensibly meant to spotlight safety concerns, but it landed some men in court. Uh, talk about the impact of that. Right. So there was, uh, there's a, a television talk show host, uh, Mona El-Iraqi, and um, actually I know her, and she was a filmmaker, and she worked, she essentially worked with, the Egypt security apparatus to stake out a bathhouse in Cairo. And then she was with them when the raid occurred and arrests were made. And, and this was a bathhouse where, where men were having sex with men. And what happened was Miss Ida Ishi posted images of these men, essentially ruining their lives, you know, before any trial or anything started. And she went forth with her program. She broadcast several episodes and she, tells people and she defends herself saying that she is only trying to fight AIDS, uh, you know, AIDS, the, in Egypt, the HIV virus, it's, it's generally called AIDS. So she says that she's trying to fight AIDS in Egypt and, and this is how she's doing it. But um, had she consulted any public health professional, they would have said that's not how you do it because, again, what you're doing is you're stigmatizing a high-risk group and when you do that, you are going to disincentivize any member of that group from engaging with the state, from engaging with, pu- with public health officials. They're not going to trust agencies, UN agencies, NGOs, different arms of the state, because they don't want to go to jail. They don't want to go to jail for three years, which is you know, what you get for, for um, debauchery, which is a charge. And it's a prostitution charge that occurs in Egypt. And what, what was surprising about that case was the men were ultimately acquitted. But the fact is, the damage was done. Their lives are ruined. I, met, I have met and, and interviewed and, uh, men who have sex with men who were, have gone through this process of arrest, and their lives are absolutely ruined. They lose their friends. They lose their family. They lose their jobs. One of the men from this uh, Hammam gate, uh, Hammam is, is, is the name of the bathhouse, he set himself on fire, you know, after, uh, after all was said and done, because you know, his life was essentially ruined because of this. And that is no way to address the spread of HIV. What you want to do is you want to engage these individuals. You want to engage high-risk people. You want them to get tested. You want them to learn how, about safe sex. And you want them to, to get on antiretrovirals. You want individuals with HIV to be on medicine so that the viral load will decrease in their blood. And, and you won't do that by arresting and, or helping to arrest these individuals. Let's shift to Libya uh, again. Uh, there was good news and bad there uh, on AIDS following the overthrow of Gaddafi, the good being a new freedom to talk about AIDS at least. Tell us more. Right. So there is um, a part of UNFPA has this amazing um, youth network called the Y-Peer Network, and, and I've worked with them. 
and, you know, working with them and the work they do was part of my role at UNFPA in Cairo. And basically, it's young people interacting with other young people and talking about sexual health and sexual rights and reproductive health. And the goal there is the safety of those individuals and the, you know, whoever, whomever it is that they might be having sexual relations with. Awareness, you know, education is key when we're trying to stop the spread of HIV. So there's a, there's a, there's a strong YPEER network. There's a, um, there's a gentleman who I know who works in Libya, and he's just doing amazing work. He's speaking with young people, and he's spreading this message of education, of, of taking care of oneself, knowing the risks. And um, so, that, you know, that's something that the YPEER Network does. And they also do that at the refugee camps um, where, where Syrians are as well. But uh, so that's, a defi- that's definitely a positive, the fact that now we can, uh, in Libya, we're seeing this talk of HIV and, and kind of breaking the taboo and, and, and getting past it and addressing issues of sex. I mean, these are, these are countries where, where, and I have friends in Egypt who, you know, if they go to buy a condom, they, they won't even look the pharmacist in the face. It's so embarrassing. I mean, the stigma is there, and, and, and you're concerned about what people will think about you. So that was, that's the positive. Now, I just... Uh, I, I interacted a bit with Wafet of the Centers for Disease Control in Libya, and, and I, I quoted her heavily in the article that I wrote. And she says that while YPIR is still working, it seems the work is decreasing. She says they're not working as much as they were before. And that Libya is, is, is dangerous right now. It's split. And um, the, the, the Libya Don group that is in control of the western part of, of the country, Tripoli, as the capital, has a lot of Islamist ties, ties to Islamic, uh, Islamist groups like uh, Ansar al-Sharia. And uh, that kind of, almost as, as occurred in Egypt after Mubarak was taken out, there is this kind of overarching religiosity, uh, very conservative culture that's kind of over everyone's heads. And Libya, you know, by the way, was a, it's a very conservative country. I, I was there in 2012, and it, it's notably conservative. It, it's not like any place I had ever been. So now with the, with the violence, with the political violence, the militias, and Libya done over at least, you know, one part of the country, we know ISIS now, or at least an, an affiliate of ISIS is also functioning in Libya. That makes talking about sex and condoms and men who have sex with men and sex work very dangerous for people. Jordan has the largest Syrian refugee camp. What are the AIDS conditions there? So, right, Jordan, uh, Zatari has the, is the largest refugee camp, um, you know, and, and it, is, there are, it is Syrians who are there. There are Syrians who are there. And we're seeing, I, I quoted a health, or I, I quoted a newspaper that had quoted a health official as saying that there were eight uh, Syrians that had tested positive for HIV, and we can only kind of imagine the real numbers because, again, people are not getting tested. People are there's, – there's no culture of getting tested. But we, what we do know is there are refugees, which is a vulnerable group, and we know that many of the refugees, about half, are, you know, perhaps a little more, are, are women and girls. And, and this overlap of women and girls and, and refugee status with poverty and the need to survive does open the door to survival sex, which is, uh, which is risky. And women and girls, we know, have to negotiate their safety. And it's very difficult to do that. They're, you know, they're physically weaker, culturally, 
um, sexes uh, or the genders are not necess- are not perceived as equals in many ways. So we we know that there are, you know, I, I spoke in the article I wrote in the article about uh, post-abortion care. So we know that there's that there is risky sex happening, but we don't really have the numbers. We can only imagine. And, and it, this also goes back to what uh, Mariki uh, from the Netherlands said to me, uh, that the numbers are going up. We just don't know to what extent. You, you know, we, you can't, we don't force people to take HIV tests, which is, you know, something that we don't want to do either. We just want to create the environment where it's safe to do so. Some hope for the region's AIDS problem arose a year ago uh, from a Cairo meeting of health ministers from 22 member states of the Arab League to endorse a formal Arab AIDS strategy. What did it entail, at least on paper? So the, the document, which is um, definitely laudable, the, I, I'm pretty critical, though. So it's, you know, I, I feel like the main point was that the country should work together you know, uh, n- not just sharing best practices, but in terms of finances, because you have countries in the Gulf that have a lot of money, and then you have countries that don't have that much money and that are, that are that are that need uh, that need assistance in addressing the threat of HIV because it's expensive to do so. So, um, you know, that is laudable, and the idea that that the health ministers would come together and to speak about the issue, I think, is very helpful, and I think that it, it does show that there is some will. Uh, to to address this, that there is an honest will to to Im, you know to improve the quality of life for for different segments of the population that may be shunned in general, but uh, perhaps there's an acknowledgement that a man who has sex with man, with another man who contracts HIV can actually pass it along to a heterosexual woman and and their children. So I think we're seeing this. We're coming to terms with reality, or at least these health ministers are. So, you know, they aligned with, with, with the United Nations are talking about decreasing different, uh, you know, HIV infections, HIV or AIDS-related deaths, mother-to-child infection, et cetera. But the issue that I have with, with the document is, for example, because of the – and I'm all, all for being culturally sensitive, and I understand why, why this is done. But, for example, the document will say you men who have risky uh, – sex, as opposed to saying men who have sex with men, which is the reality. And I feel like if we can't talk about what's happening, what the actual behavior is, then it's going to be really hard to address it. If we're kind of skirting around the, the actual topic, then if, if the issue is men who have sex with men, then a grouping of health ministers should be able to say that instead of kind of using language that doesn't offend people. And the other thing about it is the document says, you know, in numerous points, it makes the point over and over again that stigma and discrimination are, are harmful to, to fighting the spread of HIV. And the fact is, you know, numerous countries criminalize, you know, sex work, intravenous drug use, and, and, and homosexual behavior, men who have sex with men. And Saudi Arabia is, is kind of, is given a lot of credit for this but Saudi Arabia is a country where, depending on the circumstances, members of those three groups can be, you know, not just put in jail, but uh, beheaded, publicly beheaded. So there's, you know, you have, and I, and I get it, you know, public health professionals, 
ministers of health, you, you know, you you have the well-being of the population in mind, but you're working within a system and within a culture, and there's a political reality and there's a cultural reality. So it's very difficult to kind of bring teams together. And I think that, that the fact that the ministers did get together and, and they do want to fight the spread of HIV and they don't want their citizens to die of AIDS-related illnesses, that is definitely um, worthy of applause. But what I do want to see is other you know, the, the greater governments altering the, the laws and the, and the legal system to actually make it look like the plan is feasible, it's workable, and, and that these governments are serious about, uh, about um, curbing the threat of, of HIV and, and decreasing infections. You also call for more collaboration between government agencies and non-governmental organizations. Give us an example or two. So, for example, in Egypt... Uh, you kind of, with the understanding from the public uh, or the the Ministry of Health, can work with with there are local NGOs actually um, that can work with the Ministry of Health that can work with UN agencies to get into settings where people need it can be I wrote about work that's done in schools for example and what what happens in 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 Egypt is you can take a kind of broad health message to schools and you can within that broad health message you can UN aid with support from UN agencies with the blessing of the Ministry of Health and local NGOs you can say okay kids let's uh let's talk about hygiene, you know, you have to take a shower, you have to do this, you shouldn't smoke. And then you kind of get the message of sexual health in there. And you say, but also, if you're going to have sex, you know, you should use protection because it can be very risky. So, and it's done in a very culturally appropriate way. But in local NGOs, they're, they're very, um, they're invaluable in, the, in that effort. But going back to Egypt and kind of this back and forth of who's, you know, more conservative, very recently an NGO that was found to be teaching safe sex practices to same-sex couples was uh, under investigation. And, and obviously it was under threat of being shut down. And if, you, if you're serious about fighting the threat of HIV, you cannot shut down an, an NGO because they're teaching a high-risk group how to not spread the virus. So, you know, you have to be very culturally appropriate, but certainly the, the, there is space and, and a need for local NGOs that know the population, that know population subsets to work with, you know, state or, or national governments, to work with UN agencies. A lot of UN agencies are doing really good work, UNAIDS, UNFPA, in different ways uh, they're working to tackle this. And, and, and a lot of that work comes with collaboration with local NGOs. Finally, you propose bringing more voices into the discussion. Whose and to what end? So my, that, that point basically goes back to the conversations that I've had with individuals in Egypt living with the HIV virus. That point goes to the individuals quoted in the two expose articles that we spoke about earlier. And with Essentially, we need those voices who are living with HIV and who are having difficulty accessing appropriate health care 
We need them to speak and say, this is happening. I went to the clinic and I didn't get my medicine, or I went to the clinic and the man doesn't, cannot explain to me how I should take my medicine. So essentially, we, there's a, I feel like there's a lot of top-down, and there, there are many wonderful and, and beautifully written reports about how countries in the Middle East and North Africa are, are addressing the threat of HIV and individuals living with, with AIDS, but we miss a lot of the qualitative day-to-day uh, um, information from people who are not getting the services that they require. They're, you know, I, I, I spoke with a man whose wife, when she has had, when she has been pregnant, so uh, there's a, a gentleman that I know and his wife, they both have HIV, and for all of their pregnancies, they have children, they've had to self-medicate. They've had to do the research and pay someone to bring in medicine from abroad. And when, and when the man's wife has gone, when the woman has gone to the hospital to give birth, she knows not to tell the healthcare practitioner that she has HIV because she knows that they are very likely going to deny services and she won't be able to give birth in a hospital. So you, you need these stories, you know, for people, for, for especially donors, individuals who are giving money, governments who are giving money to fight this and to improve the quality of life for individuals living with HIV. We need these stories. We need the individuals at the, at the low level, individuals with HIV, we need them to tell us how their lives look, whether they're being treated with dignity and respect, whether they are getting access to the medicine they need to survive, and the medicine that is also going to put others around them is going to improve the safety of others around them if they are having unprotected sex with others. So those voices, I think, are, are essential, and, and they should be included when we talk about how countries are dealing with the threat of HIV. Christopher Reeve, thank you for bringing those stories to us. Thank you so much, David. It was really a pleasure. Writer and consultant Christopher Reeve has worked on HIV awareness at the United Nations Population Fund's Arab States Regional Office in Cairo. His story is HIV in the Arab Spring, The Unseen War, in World Policy Journal's Spring Issue. Also featured in the Spring 2015 issue of World Policy Journal, you'll find articles on intelligence failures leading to the Mumbai terror attacks, on the future of Islam and Islam in our future, and foremost fears of the unknown on four continents. Plus, tune into next week's podcast as we talk with Pulitzer Prize-winning correspondent William Beecher, later an Assistant Secretary of Defense, about his WPJ blog posts on the Iran nuclear negotiations and Barack Obama's worldview. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor-publisher David Andelman, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.